Whenever I go to software conferences, I like to walk around the vendor booths and talk to the representatives from different companies. By talking to the vendors about their marketing pitches, I get an idea for how these companies are positioning themselves for the future, and the complex business landscape of software becomes slightly easier for me to understand. At recent conferences, many of the big vendors have been talking about their cloud platform. With Cloud Foundry, OpenShift, Kubernetes, OpenStack, and so many other cloud platforms, it is hard to keep track of the different offerings and how they differentiate, at least for somebody like me who is not super familiar with these different things. This has not worked with them in practice. Today, Bridget Cromhout joins the show to talk about these different platforms and how they have changed modern software development. We also talk about her podcast, Arrested DevOps, which is a great show where she interviews some of the luminaries of the operations and software development world. You can also hear Bridget speak at O'Reilly's Velocity 2016 conference in New York. And if you are interested in sponsoring Software Engineering Daily or you want to advertise on the show, please send me an email at softwareengineeringdaily at gmail.com, or you can forward this episode to your marketing department and have them check it out. Bridget Cromhout is a principal technologist at Pivotal Software. She's also the host of Arrested DevOps, a podcast about DevOps. Bridget, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. So happy to be here, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Yes. So I have been to several conferences this year, and I usually spend a lot of time at the conferences walking around the vendor booths. And each of these vendor booths is selling some kind of platform that I'm supposed to build all of my infrastructure on. And each of these platforms represents like a slightly different version of the future. And it happens to be a better version of the future if you pick that particular vendor. So since you spend a lot of time at conferences as well, I'm curious about what your impression is when you see these different vendors, you see these different platforms that they're offering. What what do you feel? What's your impression of that? Sure, absolutely. So you're right. Uh, there is a plethora of choice out there. Um, in terms of the platform space. And I also feel like that's kind of a semantically overburdened term. And so I guess I'm going to, for purposes of this um, particular podcast, I'm going to use platform to mean uh, what enables you to live that dream of, you know, build, ship, run, and be able to do it repeatedly on day, you know, repeatedly on day two as well. Um, And there are a lot of choices out there that try to make that a little bit better. I feel like if we if we back up a little bit to when we were all hand rolling this with like a bunch of, you know, rsync scripts or bash or whatever, um, just obviously just about anything is better than trying to cobble something together. And a lot of the higher level ones are just, let's take open source stuff that already exists. Let's take some set of opinions. We can kind of get into like structured, unstructured, but let's take some set of opinions about how this should work and present that as a package that people can use, take advantage of. Um, I think that some of the uh, confusion in the space has to do with how last year, absolutely everyone wanted to talk about containers because they were, you know, the flavor of the month. And this year, everybody wants to talk about scheduling and orchestrating those containers And then some people, um, definitely my employer, Pivotal, uh, would say the official party line is looking at what's going to allow you to operate at the speed and with the effectiveness you want to operate um, encompasses more than just those pieces. I guess it'd be kind of like the, you know, 35,000 foot view. I spent a lot of time in planes, so we're not going to even go as low as 10,000 feet for that (laughs) overview. Um, But yeah, so that's kind of, there's, there's a lot out there we can kind of go into, you know, what that whole landscape looks like. But, um, well, sure. I, I think the, you know, it's, it's, it'd be an interesting place to start with the discussion of how, you know, that fashionability of going from like last year was everybody talking about containers this year, everybody talking about schedulers and you're saying cloud foundry or pivotal at least has a slightly different view where it sounds like it's more of a pragmatic, um, developer driven view rather than, um, based on fashionability or or trends or being able to boil it down to a specific um, ideological argument. So <laughs> can you give more of an explanation of, of, sure. of what that actually means when you say like how Pivotal is thinking about things? So, sure. So I think that 
you know, from the pivotal point of view, and I would agree with this, something like containers or scheduling of same is necessary. It's just not sufficient. So focusing on that stuff is really, really interesting to a small subset of the population. But a lot of people in this world do not, even people in tech, do not necessarily need to think about the exact format of their container. It's like, okay, Docker open source runc, the OCI exists, done. Like this is this isn't really something we need to debate. So they're they're not um, focused necessarily on the exact format of the container so much as, or like the exact bin packing that happens with the scheduler or whatever. Um, but instead, like, and Pivotal's not the only one thinking along these lines for sure, um, focusing on exactly how does this particular platform um, operate on the application level. Like kind of looking at the application level, moving that value line, as Pivotal likes to put it, um, a little bit higher is where we try to focus the conversation just because the tech stuff is super interesting, but nobody goes to work saying, I'm going to schedule a lot of containers today and it's going to be great. <laughs> like, that's not usually what people are focused on. So how does that look in practice? Because that, that is a very appealing um, you know, value proposition to me if I'm a software developer and all I want to do is go to work and build a Rails application and have it scale magically you know, how, how does that look from my perspective as a developer? What is my ideal experience for, for a platform as a developer? Because, I mean, most of the episodes I do that are discussions about these platforms are like getting deep into the internals of the platform. And it's funny because that ends up kind of missing, you know, or <laughs> looking at the looking at the trees rather than the forest because, you know, you're building this platform for the sake of the developer who's at the top of it actually writing an application <laughs> that users are going to use. Well, and that's like the giant temptation, right? Like, I mean, I was on call for production infrastructure for from 1999 until last August. So like, I'm an ops person through and through. I'm really excited about and interested in those details. But I try to remember that as fun and exciting as those are, um, if the developer wants the experience of my application works the way I tested it, um, you know, everything I was able to test myself is going to work more or less the same asterisk, asterisk, you know, terms not valid in what the lower 48 or whatever, but like, it's going to work more or less the same in production. Like that's what a lot, not all, but a lot of developers want. They want the ability to feel like they were able to conduct whatever tests they could test locally before they, you know, shipped it somewhere. And that's kind of the promise of containers. But I mean, we, we probably all of us who you know have some mud on our hands are well aware that there's the promise of containers, and then there's fighting with overlay file systems and running out of inodes and like all of the things that actually happen. Um, I know I'm, I'm kind of getting away from your point here, but I'm going to bring it back, which is to say, the developer experience with using something like Cloud Foundry is kind of like having your own Heroku, whether it's in your data center or in your AWS account or whatever. Um, so you have this CF push experience. And then whether or not you've turned on a feature flag to use Docker, um, you're either pushing uh, your code and leaving the build packs in the hands of the platform operators, or perhaps you're pushing an image, you know, like a, a Docker image that you've created. Uh, and we need to talk too, of course, about controlling the provenance of one's images, but you're pushing an image and then letting the platform handle all of the pieces like the centralized log aggregation and the um, auto scaling and the, you know, or just, you know, scaling in general, uh, the self-healing, like nobody really wants to be paged because, you know, node 48A is dead. Like those days, fortunately, are mostly over. <laughs> so that's like the developer generally um, doesn't want to be focused on that stuff. Not to mention, of course, like so many organizations have this really frustrating ServiceNow sort of experience, which, I mean, like, we all know ServiceNow is ServiceNever, right? Like, this is this is kind of the, you open a ticket, you wait, you get that VM, but then the VM doesn't isn't wired up with exactly what you want. And, and I, t I talk to a lot of people who are like, and then we go back and forth about the firewall rules, and I'm like, ah. So in something like Cloud Foundry, and again, Cloud Foundry is not the only answer in this space, but in something like Cloud Foundry where developers can self-provision 
previously whitelisted um, backing services, for example. They want another database? Okay, get another database within whatever reasonable constraints the platform operators have established. They want some Redis? All right, good. Now you have a Redis instance. Like, there's, there's this, a lot of large enterprises aren't super comfortable letting people run their AWS bill up to whatever they want it to be. But at the same time, the promise of something like ElastiCache that means you can go get your memcached or Redis without too much um, haggling and back and forth with somebody who's acting as keyboard as a service, like this simplifies a developer's life to the point where they might actually be able to focus on developing. I guess would mm. maybe, maybe one way to put it. So you touched on one thing there. You mentioned container provenance. What are you talking about with that term? Oh, sure. Absolutely. So imagine, if you will, a Docker file, and it says from something, say it's from Ubuntu 14.04, and then you've got a bunch of apt-get install, God only knows what, without versions, and then you've got a bunch of add of whatever is in the developer's CWD, and um and then you, you know, Docker tag that and you Docker push it. And that's basically not a reproducible experience, right? So like whatever they got, you know, from the app get install from whatever mirrors they're using at that very moment is maybe not going to be the same later. This kind of whole like, you know, idempotency thing or whatever. Um, or if they did an add into that Docker file, which again, I mean, basically fancy tarballs, but if they didn't add of something that they then didn't check into source control the exact same way. Basically, if you're creating your images outside of some sort of CI you know, pipeline, uh, you have serious problems. And this is, this is one of those things where I feel like the promise of using containers is kind of sold to developers as this like, just get it working on your laptop and then whatever was on your laptop, we ship it right out to production. And it's like, okay, I've, I mean, I've actually run Docker in production and that is not what we did. Because, like, you would have to know where are these images being built from if it's coming from a base image that maybe you actually are fixing SSL on. Then you need your CI pipeline to be able to roll out new images for all your applications. I mean, this raises a whole bunch of questions. And this is kind of like that tension between something like build packs and something like um, using Docker images on, say, Cloud Foundry. Is, yes, with build packs, you... Um, you keep that whole attack surface away from what the developers are producing or whatever, but then you're also, to some extent, decoupling the um, uh, dependencies of the application, like from the application itself. So if you want to go with the, you know, fairly well-respected modern practice of like bundling absolutely everything you need for that application with it, then you need to think about how you're creating those images. I don't know if, that is, if that's kind of outside the context of what you've spent time with or if you generally know what I mean by that. But like, if you don't have a way to repeatedly recreate the um, giant attack surface of the delightful operating system that you're shipping with your application, uh, then as people have been joking on Twitter, like OpenSSL is the gift that keeps on giving. Every time that happens, <laughs> like you need an ability to actually fix everything. So it, it sounds like what you're saying is that you know you, you touched on this with the kind of example of somebody writes something on their laptop. Oh, it runs on my laptop in Docker. Therefore, it will run in production on Docker. It sounds like you're saying that's kind of an empty promise. It's not necessarily uh, true. Like, I mean, it might. See, this is this is kind of like again, a container is not a platform. So, what exactly is that container that you've tried on your laptop connecting to in terms of backing services, like? Do you need some other containers that you had some like Docker Compose files and you stood up a whole bunch of, you know, other stuff locally that you don't have in production? I mean, the, uh, just because you definitely have all of the, you know, libssl that you need that goes with that or whatever that goes, you have all the gems that you need that go with that application. That doesn't necessarily answer the question of, okay, what about everything that isn't your application that your application needs to talk to? And so that's kind of, that brings us back to like the, all of the vendors out there who want to talk to you about platforms have some solution or another for um, composing the, a coherent entire ecosystem that your application can live in. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So then how do those different uh, composition platforms compare? I mean, we were talking about Cloud Foundry here. There's also, you know, just all these different platforms 
Docker Swarm or Mesos mm-hmm. or Kubernetes or OpenShift. Mm-hmm. How like let's let's forget the developer experience story for a second. Like the mm-hmm. top level developer who just wants to develop a Rails app and deploy it. How do these different platforms contrast with each other when we're talking about composability? Okay, so um, when you, well, okay, so some of that, like when you bring up composability, some of that, some platforms uh, choose to be more pluggable than others. Some choose to have um, a more structured approach. And there's been, you know, reams and reams of stuff written about this. So I feel like there's a lot of TLDR uh it depends on how opinionated you want your platform to be and like what you want those opinions to be. So for example, um, the, the, the fine folks at Mesosphere have come out with like a Mesos plus cloud foundry thing that they have up on GitHub where they took out, uh, the Diego like elastic runtime from cloud foundry and replaced it with Mesos, but everything else in there is cloud foundry. So like that sort of thing is, is certainly not a commercial product that Pivotal supports, but it is possible just because this stuff is all open source software anyway. Um, but if you're if you're looking at like the stuff coming out of Docker, I guess right now they would probably be talking more about SwarmKit than Swarm. And since by the time this is released, DockerCon will have already happened, let's just fill in the blank here. There's going to probably be exciting announcements in this entire space, just because, you know, like it's a, it's a very fast-moving space. Certainly. Um, so- and there's, well, and then you also mentioned Kubernetes and um Kelsey Hightower himself from Google would be the first to tell you Kubernetes is actually not a platform. It's a framework that you would use to build platforms. So there are a number of people out there who have rebased their platform uh, strategies like on top of Kubernetes. For example, you mentioned OpenShift from Red Hat. So like OpenShift V2 was a whole different thing. And then OpenShift V3, they kind of rebased the entire thing onto Docker and Kubernetes. So like there's, I think there's a lot of people trying to figure out um, which pieces do they want to develop in-house? Which pieces do they want to compose from, you know, all of the building blocks that keep uh, solidifying in the space? Like uh, Cloud Foundry originally um, has had containers, you know, for years. It, Cloud Foundry's been around since 2011, so obviously predated Docker. But when the OCI came about and, like, RunC became standard, we were like, awesome. Now that there is a standard everyone's moving towards, yeah, absolutely, Docker support, GA. So it's like there's kind of – it's a space where everybody is looking at what everyone else is doing in order to try to um, maintain compatibility to a certain extent, but also to make sure that the stuff that uh, – people who are making platform decisions are making their decisions on isn't necessarily just a list of, does it have this component under the hood? Does it have that component under the hood? Like if you can all say, well, yeah, we all support all of this stuff. Why don't you look at what it can do for you and what the experience is like for your users? That's kind of the goal. I think a lot of people are moving towards. So you mentioned the OCI just now, and this is something that um, I had not even heard of until uh, I was sitting at lunch during OSCON and there's, I think, somebody from CoreOS and somebody had, from Docker that, like having a discussion about it. I didn't really know what it was, uh, which shows how out of touch I am with the space or how fast the space is moving. Mm-hmm. The OCI is this open container initiative. Can you? It, I don't know how much uh, knowledge you have of, of this of this topic, but maybe you could give me a little historical background on what the open container initiative is like, what precipitated it and like where we stand with it today. Um, I can try. I'm definitely a little bit of an outsider to this space, but the, uh, I think the, the most important thing to consider is that when people who are not completely steeped in this stuff are trying to make decisions and it looks like everybody in a given space is, you know, there it's like high noon at the okay corral. A lot of decision <laughs> makers are just going to say, let's wait six months. Like maybe we'll put containers on the agenda for 2018 when this mm-hmm. all shakes out. Like, and so, um, when I think that like mid early to mid 2015, it kind of looked like, uh, containers were going in a, in a pretty, um, disparate direct, you know, kind of disparate directions, uh, like different, doing, 
different container yeah. services are all it, were becoming non-compatible. Yeah, like incompatible container formats. Um, CoreOS was promoting their Rocket stuff and kind of going their own direction, separate from Docker. And so it, it looked kind of dire for a little bit there. And then at DockerCon last year, um, Solomon Hikes, uh, founder and CTO of Docker, put a slide up with a dove with an olive branch. And I thought, oh, getting ready for the live tweet. I know what's happening here. Because <laughs> <laughs> Alex Colby from CoreOS was sitting next to me in the front row. And sure enough, you know, uh, Solomon you know, took his hand and said, hey, we're going to bury the hatchet, mixing all these metaphors. I forget exactly what he said, but basically just announcing the Open Container Initiative, announcing the fact Docker was open sourcing RunC, and like, instead of um, keeping the container format, which is, of course, Docker does many other things, you know, as a company, but keeping the container format as something that is going to be shared between everyone uh, and putting that, you know, in the in the care of an independent governing body basically means that a lot of, again, you know, possibly risk-adverse large organizations and people who get their advice from Gartner can suddenly start realizing that this stuff is probably <laughs> safe to use. So, like, I think it's great for adoption. Right. Okay. So is the Open Container Initiative, is that like this standards body for containers? Um, I guess your Wikipedia is as good as mine for exactly what the, <laughs> okay. exactly what the formal, um, the exact, I mean, I don't know if it like, I think it's part of the Linux Foundation or something, but I'm not sure okay. what the exact formal um, governance model is. But I do know that it's not governed uh, specifically by Docker Inc., which is, I think, what a lot of people look for. I mean, much like Cloud Foundry, for example, has the Cloud Foundry Foundation. Like, Cloud Foundry came out of Pivotal. Um, it was actually a, VM, a VMware project. Um, Pivotal came out of, you know, EMC, VMware. And... Uh, Having a having an independent foundation, you know, in the last couple of years means that all of the people like IBM and HP are, who are making big bets on Cloud Foundry with their own commercial distributions are able to feel safe in doing that and not feel like, oh, but what if Pivotal changes their mind about something? Now we can't work anymore. So mm. it, it's also really great for the sales cycle because we can say, hey, like if you choose to use a commercial distribution of Cloud Foundry, like I'm contractually obligated to tell you that it should be Pivotal's. But um, <laughs> if you in some way feel uncomfortable with that, you have other options and you aren't trapped. Because for some people, for some reason, people don't really love lock-in. So <laughs> having the ability to use something else, whether it's, hey, I've got this whole you know S3 bucket full of Docker images and I want to use fill in the blank, I want to use, you know, Docker Cloud or I want to use OpenShift or I want to use Cloud Foundry. And they can keep having, producing, and um, running those Docker images no matter which of those they're using. It's a pretty powerful and freeing concept for an organization that's trying to wrap their minds around how safe is this in terms of a technical data and lock-in choice for us um, to adopt. Yeah, so help, that's very interesting. Help me understand that because uh, what, like, how do you make a product where you're simultaneously pitching to the user or the CIO or the potential customer Hey, this is not going to give you lock-in. You know, how do you simultaneously do that, but also have a defensible business model? Because you, it would seem like the problem with that strategy is that your the defensibility of your business model is based on this moat. Like, how do you you know you want to lock <laughs> people in? So, how do you build something that has both low switching costs mm -hmm. and a defensible business model? Sure, absolutely. Like, so. I can't speak to anyone else's like specific pricing or business model because I really don't know. But from Pivotal's point of view, we have a subscription model and it's usage-based. And so that incents us to make sure that the paying users of our commercial offering are finding good value in it, getting good value out of it, and want to keep renewing and increasing their consumption. So like for the, the some of the differentiators between um, open source Cloud Foundry, which of course is great and a lot of people use, um, and then commercial Cloud Foundry is that you know, specifically Pivotal Cloud Foundry, is with the open source version, um, there's a lot of glue you end up uh, building yourself or just, you know, getting off GitHub, which for some organizations is fine. And you can imagine uh, certain verticals and other organizations where that's just, just uh, Git clone, whatever, is not something that their, you know, auditors or whatever are going to sign off on. Um but so like the, some of the differenti differentiators are things like we have um, 
pre-configured tiles, like integrations with all sorts of backing services that otherwise you would probably have to write your own custom service broker in order to connect to. So if you would like at the touch of a button to have a Cassandra cluster or, you know, commercially supported Jenkins from CloudBees or, you know, MongoDB or whatever it is that you want to get um, or a whole bunch of uh, AWS stuff that, for example, or GCP stuff or Azure stuff where you might not want to um, give the, uh, say, developers in a specific group the um, IAM uh, credentials in order to let them spin up specific things. You might want to restrict it a little bit more. Again, this is obviously relevant to the interests of companies who have, um, you know, more than just a startup with a few people around a table who all have product AWS credentials. <laughs> um, but if you want to do like more role-based access control, it's possible to say this group of people can spin up these specific, uh, you know, types of say RDS instances, but we don't want you, them to use Aurora yet, you know, stuff like that. Sure. Um, and then they can spin them up and uh, connect them to the platform and it's like all built in. Um, mm. There's also, of course, the, the commercial support and there's, a pretty broad range of services. So like people who want to, you know, try something commercially, a lot of times they do POCs, maybe they want workshops, maybe they want people to come in and kind of work with them to facilitate their whole IT transformation that's going along with this. Um, a lot of places like say uh, Home Depot or Allstate, um, and they've, they've spoken at like Cloud Foundry Summit about the kind of uh, changes that they've made with their velocity where they have a lot, they start moving applications onto the platform and find that they can iterate a lot faster than they were. But then that means that everything around, say, their change control processes has to be reexamined. Uh, Allstate was talking about how they had to kind of free themselves up from the obligation of sticking to their giant old checklists or whatever, because, I mean, nothing's the same anymore, right? Like everything is different. So uh, holding on to the way that they were doing stuff turned out to be the thing that was slowing them down the most. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I, there was a we did an episode about the Allstate uh, DevOps mm-hmm. movement a while ago, and it was, it was pretty popular. Um, and I do want to get into that discussion of of DevOps uh, a little bit later. But mm-hmm. you know, here we're having this discussion of platforms, this interesting mm-hmm. discussion of platforms. But the the cloud infrastructure discussion, I think, is is equally interesting, and that's basically lower down the stack of mm-hmm. the whatever Kubernetes or Cloud Foundry or whatever we're talking about. The, fine, Kubernetes is not a, not a platform, <laughs> but um, you know, at, at the higher level. Component. So I did it's a, a show. Sure. It's a component. Okay, sure. So I did a show recently about Google, and mm-hmm. they're moving internal services onto. Um, Kubernetes hosted on the Google Compute Platform. So Google is quite serious about this cloud thing, about contending with AWS. And -hmm. of course, the first mover advantage of AWS was so strong. Everyone has expertise in AWS. Fewer people have expertise in Google Cloud. What is your impression of the infrastructure provider competition? How is this shaping up and and how like are are people going to ever stop using AWS as the kind of like a de facto thing because you know it and you know is the cost really that much different than Google? You know, what's what's your impression of this infrastructure level? Yeah, so like IaaS is a really interesting space, right? For all of the reasons that you just mentioned. Um and also because when you say people, I feel like, you know, I kind of want to put asterisk for some values of people. For example, uh, there are a number of people like say, you know, organizations rather, I mean, I guess corporations are still people, right? Have they fixed that yet? (laughs) There's a, there's a number of organizations like say Home Depot that are not particularly interested in giving Amazon a whole bunch of money because as they put it, that would be kind of like running our infrastructure on lows, like, they, that's not what, you know, if they see somebody as a competitor in their space, they're pretty interested in using one of the other IS providers. So there are actual commercial reasons why some people would be resolutely against Amazon um, just for their own competitive reasons. Uh, and I think that there's also like some people start out by thinking that they need multi-cloud. But what they really want is the ability to have um, good negotiating with, you know, their cloud provider. So this is kind of like, you know, do you have to go multi-CDN or do you just have to have the ability to move your workloads off of uh, Akamai so that they'll have a discussion with you about your pricing? Mm -hmm. So I think there's a little bit of that in there. Um, 
That said, I think that there's, there is the first mover advantage. There is the, you're, you know, up into the right in Gartner's box. That's, you know, there's a subset of people who are going to pay attention to what exactly the magic quadrants say, because magic, I guess. Um, but there's also something to be said for looking at the missteps, mistakes, and technical doubt of other people. So like, there's, it doesn't necessarily mean that, um, you know, being in a, a firm third place behind Azure and AWS um, is an advantage for Google, but it definitely gives them the ability to look at everything that, you know, say, especially AWS has done and decide, do we want to do it like that? Or are we going to learn some lessons from that and do it differently? And I think that's part of like the, their whole push with Kubernetes is like, I don't really think GCP is going to care. I mean, if you're bringing workloads there and running them, do they care if it's Kubernetes or not? No. But if that's the most appealing place to use Kubernetes and Kubernetes is, looks exciting, then sure. I mean, it can drive traffic there. Hmm. So, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to say that it's like it, uh, the only reason it exists is as a loss leader for GCP. I mean, I think there's a lot more to it than that. There's obviously lessons from Borg and what have you, but there's, there's a lot going on in that space, I guess. And that's without even considering, um, and we're only talking about like giant public cloud. Uh, we're not even talking yet about things like, I don't know if you saw the news that came out, uh, late breaking news last night, Joint just got acquired by Samsung. I did see that. Yeah. And so that's, um, they do run a public cloud and it's not, you know, Amazon sized, obviously, but they do some pretty interesting stuff um, with their kind of S3 alike that you can basically run functions uh, localized to the data on Manta. So that's very interesting, presumably. I, I don't know the mind of Samsung, but I would imagine that that's very interesting to um, somebody who has a lot of mobile and IoT. Is that like the Google Cloud Functions or the Amazon exactly, Lambda? Exactly, exactly. It's like having the, the Google Cloud Functions or the Lambda already built in to your, uh, to your blob store. So this is the serverless discussion, and I've done a couple shows about serverless recently, and the picture that they're that the serverless folks are painting is that the future is like this is the next this is like the next thing after Docker. This is like I don't know. This is you're getting a sneak preview of 2017's hot new hotness. Um, Have we decided we're completely skipping over unikernels? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. The cycle is moving too fast for unikernels. Um, I mean, so I don't know. How, is, that, is that conversation even worth having right now? Or are we like too early in the serverless computing world to have a serious conversation about, about that as a production thing? Well, I think Martin Fowler had a pretty good blog post about it where he was um, phrasing it more as like functions as a service. I think that's a really good way to think of it because honestly, the word serverless is kind of silly, right? I mean, there's still servers. You just can't SSH into them. But they still exist. <laughs> so um, I would say, like, if you think about um, units of abstraction, uh, a lot of us don't rack and stack stuff ourselves anymore. And I'm not sad because how many times did you make your fingers bleed with those rack screws? You know, it's like, <laughs> um, but a lot of us are not, you know, worrying about like the cooling in our data centers anymore. Again, I'm not sad about that. Um, but then, if you're so if you've abstracted to like infrastructure as a service, then you start getting into the handing people a VM as a unit that you expect them to consume is not necessarily what a lot of developers want to manage. But if your uh, SaaS is obviously like very um, segmented and specialized, so like people do want the ability to run their stuff, and then you get into PaaS, which is a ridiculous word and always makes me think of Easter eggs, but like you, you get into um, exactly what unit do people want to consume. And uh, people of my, you know, coworkers that I, uh, I was at a couple of startups ago, I was with um, some coworkers who are now using Lambda at the supply chain logistics company that they're at here in Minneapolis, uh, SPS Commerce. They actually talked about it at our local DevOps meetup a couple of months hmm. ago. So, um, And it worked. Yeah, and they're they're using Lambda. They're even using Lambda for some operational tasks. And this is kind of along the lines of, you know, that server that was kind of the special snowflake that you just kept along, you know, kept limping along with because you had all the important cron jobs on it. That sort of thing. Like 
if you look at, say, HashiCorp's Kronos, if, you know, there's distributed cron is still kind of a tricky problem, but um, having like jobs that just fire and then you get some sort of status as to whether they ran or not, it's really useful for like ETL type stuff or, you know, the kinds of things that a lot of companies need to run a job from time to time, maybe on demand, maybe periodically. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So like there, yeah. there's definitely a use for that. And if you think about it, that's something people have been using for quite a while. The only difference with this is instead of having the stuff run out of a cron tab file on one of your servers, and if something happens to that server, hopefully the cron tab file gets like hot migrated somewhere else. You know what I'm saying? Like instead of that, this is just fire the jobs off kind of more, more like working with something like uh, Amazon's SQS, you know, or like, or with SNS, like subscriptions and topics. It's like there's... There's a lot of components that people have been building and building on that do this sort of thing. And I think GCP or, you know, uh, sorry, the Google Cloud Functions or um, Lambda is going that direction. And there's definitely things that it makes sense for. I guess I would say the big caveat there would be um, just like microservices are not magic and don't actually solve all your problems. Because like building fault-tolerant distributed systems is actually not easier than everything else. And so it's like, imagine taking a monolithic application, you know, the Rails app you were mentioning earlier, like the kind of applications a lot of orgs are still writing or have legacy code of. Imagine taking that and trying to decompose it into which functions you can just kind of fire and forget and which functions you can fire off and then you definitely need to check the return status of. (laughs) Obviously, this sort of thing is possible, but like... Just saying serverless is not going to make your architecture work better. Yeah, it's it's like, like, which is going to come first, (laughs) virtual reality or being able to turn your Ruby on Rails app into serverless code? Well, I mean, again, like you have to, when you're decomposing it, just like if you're decomposing something into microservices, you have to look at, and this is kind of back to the operational characteristics of your application, you have to look at what are all the failure states you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna apply something like um, Kyle Kingsbury's Jepson to this particular distributed data store, how does it behave when it actually breaks? Like, what does it look like when all of the things that could happen do happen? And you right. can imagine that with you know functions as a service or serverless <laughs> or whatever you want to call it, you have to think about that stuff a lot more. Which is that kind of brings us back to platforms. Like, if you want to create something that and the average developer can put their code in and it will just work, then you might have to give them more guardrails. Um, You might have to give them like kind of the contracts and promises of if your app behaves in this way and has these operational characteristics and this amount of operational maturity, then it can work given these constraints, right? So like if you, for example, if you want to be able to auto scale, like, which sounds magical until you realize that your backing data store is not going to auto scale. So like, if you want to auto scale, that's cool. Um, In what way are you interacting with all of your state and your persistence? And like, how much session stickiness do you use? And like, there's, this stuff is all possible. And this future is within our grasp. But there, there are so many operational considerations there that, I feel that um, the hype cycle tends to ignore because it's never fun thinking about all the data janitor work. <laughs> no, no, it's not. And so you mentioned uh, Kyle Kingsbury, and I actually was listening to his episode of Arrested DevOps, which is your podcast earlier mm-hmm. today. And he, that guy is pretty funny. Um, he, He's great. <laughs> you know, whether you like BDSM or distributed <laughs> systems, he is just really hilarious. Um and so, I mean, given that you are the host of that podcast, I do want to talk some about DevOps. Um, you've mm-hmm. been an engineer and a sysadmin since the early 2000s. So you have had a front row seat to 90s, rise. actually. <laughs> since what? I've, I've, I've literally been getting my paychecks through typing stuff into a Unix prompt since 1994. 1994. I started, I started doing that in college. So my first full-time job was in 99. Um, you know, on call for production at an ISP. So, but, uh, but yeah, I did actually start typing stuff into a Unix prompt for, for fun and profit in 94. Yeah. So. Okay. Wow. So, <laughs> so that's two, two, uh, dot com or two crashes, two economic crashes worth of, uh, of, of insight into how 
companies are built and cloud services. And so you've had a front receipt to the rise of the cloud and you can draw, I mean, we can draw a line from the first days of AWS to mm-hmm. the current world of platforms that we use today, how to manage those cloud services. And you've obviously seen, you saw the, the attempts at cloud in the nineties when mm-hmm. it didn't really work. Um, so, I mean, I'm very, just very curious about the, the lessons that you've learned from you know that that long career arc and how that has brought us like these these pain points that have gotten solved over that time the pain points of, about uh, operational work and developer work that have kind of uh, congealed into this thing that we call devops today what's your you know i find that everybody who has some experience in in this in this uh in this area they they kind of have a slightly different perspective a slightly more interesting perspective on how we've gotten to where we are today so what's what's your impression of how we have arced to where we are today and what like because I, I think that informs uh you know everybody who is a commentator on this uh fuzzy thing that we call devops uh you know <laughs> I don't know. What's your what's your perspective on that? How have you arrived at your current views around DevOps? Well, I guess what I would what I would say about that is that there's, you know, going all the way back to the nineties and like the BOFH, you know, bastard operator from hell attitude of how you interact with those users of your systems, those pesky users, especially if those users are developers who you assume they probably want to YOLO some shit out into production to make your, your day worse. Like if if we set up this um, antagonistic relationship of us versus them inside our organizations um, or even inside our you know tech communities, nobody really wins. I mean, setting up zero sum, sum games is um, kind of a losing proposition for everyone. So the part where uh, I think DevOps makes a lot of sense and is super helpful is when you think about who has access to what or who gets to do what, I would just turn that around and say like, who can help in what area and default to open default to trust. You can always roll some credentials and revoke someone's access if there's a problem. But if you focus on, you know, resiliency, of course, but also on API addressability and self-service, like you end up with much happier developers and also a lot fewer trouble tickets for people tasked with operations to plow through and act as keyboard as a service for. So, I mean, it's, it's obviously like a major productivity win and major cost savings for many organizations to move towards a model where people are more empowered um, to get their necessary work done while also hopefully having just better interactions with their coworkers because there's a lot less, um, you know, siloing and throwing of tasks over the wall and then being, you know, uh, iterating back and forth and back and forth with trying to get some, you know, that oscillation of trying to arrive at what someone wanted when you could have probably empowered them to self-service it if you devoted some resources to that in the first place. I'm not sure if that's what you were getting at, but I guess that's kind of what I see as like, that's the practical reality of if an op- organization is operating with a more dev- uh, with a more DevOps mindset, those are the kind of benefits they start to see. Yeah, no, I, that definitely uh, answers my question. I mean, it was a super general, uh, broad swathing <laughs> question. But, you know, one thing you discuss on the podcast is that sometimes an organization will realize that the relationships among the software team is broken and the organization needs to decide uh, how they're going to bring the DevOps to the organization. <laughs> and, and it's funny because the, the vendors at the conferences that we both attend, uh, these vendors are not just selling these platforms. They're also often trying to sell the DevOps, whatever that is, like <laughs> however you get it in a box or in a download, you've got the <laughs> DevOps now. And and if I'm a software company in this situation, like, like I'm not going to be seduced. Like, you can't buy your way out of it. Um, is so. I mean, what, what? Obviously, there's not a packaged product that I can procure that will give me the DevOps. And you've also <laughs> given a talk that you said containers won't fix your broken culture. <laughs> what, what are the points that you're trying to make here about how you can't buy your way out of this problem and you can't just deploy Docker and have it fix your culture? Well, so to, good tooling definitely helps because all the friendliness and good intentions in the world are not going to make getting that VM faster if somebody has to artisanally hand whittle it. So, 
I mean, obviously good tooling is going to speed up um, delivery of, you know, collaboration between teams and that sort of thing. But the problem and many, and now that I, you know, since last summer, I've been working for Pivotal, been working for a vendor for the first time in my career. And, um, and also like not working uh, in direct operations myself, but um, in tech advocacy, which means that I spend a non-zero amount of time, like you said, at conferences, but I also go in and talk to customers and prospects and hear about the dysfunction inside their organizations. And one of these common themes that I just keep hearing is that a lot of people in a lot of um, parts of the organization want change, but there's a lot of resistance to um, something that could be perceived as making people's lives more difficult if they have to learn something completely different or maybe what's going to happen to all of our jobs. Uh, I think people get really worried about just the human factors of what happens to my fiefdom if I don't control X, Y, and Z. And if I don't control the horizontal and the vertical anymore, what does that leave me? Mm. And I think that that's the place that a vendor coming in and saying, not only are we going to um, provide you some tooling that's going to help you with this transformation, but we're also going to hold your hand through some of these cultural changes. And some vendors like offer, you know, consulting services, like transformation services. I would say you, while somebody certainly could sell you DevOps in a box, you can't successfully buy it on account of that box is actually empty, but people can definitely help you figure out how to help people inside your organization transform into their new roles. So like the mm. people who might've spent a lot of time configuring the VMs before, perhaps now they're going to be your platform operators. Mm. And perhaps now they're going to be the people who make sure that your base Docker images are sane and patched and make sure that the CI system works well so that everyone who wants to can provision new Docker images that read from those base ones. You know what I'm saying? So like, Yes, there might be some learning there, but there's also, there's still probably is a, someone needs to pay attention to the whole piece, you know, the whole thing and not just a little piece. Right. And so that general job will still exist. It's just going to exist in a slightly different form. Right. And so talking about companies that have successfully adopted DevOps and, you know, they've got the the flywheel spinning. There's this postmodern version of DevOps where people at Netflix, for example, are talking about no ops and <laughs> the Google people are talking about site reliability engineering. And my impression of these variations on no ops uh, or, or site reliability engineering, whatever you want to call it, my impression is that they focus on an even higher degree of automation. And basically the idea is that if a problem occurs once and it requires manual intervention one time, that's okay. But after that, like it should be automated away. Um, I, I'm curious if you get the same impression of this kind of next generation ops discussion or, and, and how realistic that is. Well, I think that, I mean, first of all, like no ops is also another kind of silly term because I think uh, Kelsey Hightower of Google was just tweeting something about how if you're kind of hung up on this no ops thing, you might not want to try to spin up a Kubernetes cluster because, oops, that requires ops. <laughs> like, um, there's, there's always going to be someone doing ops. If you are using App Engine, that someone works at Google and they don't work at your company. And that's fine. They, I mean, there's still going to be someone doing it. It's just a question of whether or not it's valuable to your organization to have whatever percentage of that operations happening inside your company. Um, there's uh, pivotal customers who they use cl uh, commercial Cloud Foundry and they have us run it for them in their Azure account. Okay. I mean, or in their AWS account or their Google account now. And it's like, so, it's, and there are some who have us run it for them in their data center on their OpenStack or their vSphere. And so like, do they have ops people? I mean, probably they still have their OpenStack or their vSphere, or they still have somebody making some decisions about what happens in their AWS account, but they've chosen to outsource some percentage of this operational function. I mean, again, that, that doesn't mean that the operational function doesn't exist. It just means that uh, it may not be happening in the exact same, and now I installed RHEL sort of way that it happened in the past. 
And I also think a lot of those jobs that are basically just click OK a bunch of times are terrible and no one should be doing them. And so the fact that we've automated them away is a good thing. Um, that and like and Google having their own names for things. I mean, it, it's Google. What are you going to do? Um, <laughs> I would say there's there's kind of that meme. And uh, I curated a really exciting um, modern infrastructure track for Velocity that I'm that's going to be next week. So maybe it'll be over by the time people hear this. But for Velocity Santa Clara. But we have a number of um, good tutorials and also speakers. And one of the speakers, uh, Gareth Rushgrove of Puppet, is going to be talking about um, the meme of Google infrastructure for the rest of us. And, uh, you know, is this a good thing? Is this what should we should be focusing on? And I don't have spoilers for his talk. I can't say for sure what he's going to say. I think my answer to that would be basically, what are the results you're trying to get to? And let's focus on what is going to get you to those results. I mean, I kind of, I guess, you know, uh, being a Methuselah of tech, I've, I've seen so many people focus on the tools to the exclusion of what the tools can do for them that I just kind of want to like wave giant signs that say tools are necessary, but they're not sufficient. You need to look at what you're getting out of it. Like you're not actually, I think I've, I've said in a couple of conference talks now, like as it turns out, it's not actually mandatory for you to run a Markov bot on the front page of Hacker News and instantly like install everything you hear about on your production infrastructure that day. Like, as it turns out. I've been out. doing it wrong. <laughs> like, you don't have to do that. And, like, most people who are successful are not doing that. And so I think that we have a lot of hype in at least the corner of tech that I play in. But I try to keep it real to a certain extent, too. Like, you know, I, I was talking to, I, I think I was just tweeting the other day about an enterprise that I was talking to that was very excited about their um, adoption of, like, this year they're getting themselves some, some Git and some CI and some configuration management. And I'm like, you know what? That's great. I it mean, is yes, great. you're getting it in 2016 and some other people did it before you. And you know what? A lot of other people don't have it at all. Exactly. And the fact that you've decided that this is important and you're investing it in it is really important. And it's really You're not useful. on COBOL anymore. Well, and I mean, whatever COBOL you have, like... It, now it's like, in Git. Well, you're at least having... Um, it really, some of that honestly comes down to how easy is it for you to hire people? Like right. technical debt can get to the point where if you show your tool suite to a candidate and they say, oh, I'm going to back away slowly. I don't want to work with any of that. You may have let it go too long. So like there is, there is an outer limit to how long you should go without updating stuff. But um, I would say that a lot of organizations out there that are trying to buy themselves some DevOps or whatever, what they probably really should do is just talk to someone. It doesn't even matter which vendor. It really doesn't. I mean, mm. obviously you should probably talk to Pivotal, but there are lots of other vendors. Just talk to someone who, and this is what I think is key, who is not going to just sell you some licenses and disappear. Mm. Because I think this is a space that if you can find someone who can hold your hand, if you're not sure what direction to go, Talk to, interview a number of vendors, find one that you feel comfortable, if, assuming you're the kind of large organization that does most of your best work with vendors at your side, find one you feel comfortable with that appears to actually, you know, uh, tell, you, tell it to you true and get a little bit of help as opposed to just picking everything on the appetizer sampler and then wondering why it didn't turn out well and deciding that maybe DevOps isn't for you. Mm. Okay, well, I think that's a great place to close off. Um, Bridget, thanks for coming on the show. Everybody should go check out Arrested DevOps. If you like <laughs> this podcast, you probably will like Arrested DevOps. So uh, thanks again. And um, yeah, it's yeah. been nice talking to you. Great talking to you, Jeff. <laughs>